welcome to episode 260 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Michael O'Malley, Baker, and Andrew Swafford. In today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one, and in part two, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1969's Putney Swope. Uh, real quick before we jump into the action, uh, lots of good stuff on Cinematary.com. We mentioned last week we have reviews of The Mountain, Hobbs and Shaw, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as well as the 2019 Schmite and Schmound poll. We also have a conversation between Reed and Andrew on the film Them That Follow. Uh, so if you're into snake handling and Walton Goggins... We've got that content just for you. Uh, so head over to the site. We're, we're you know getting near the end of our Young Critics series, so you can go back and listen to all the episodes that we've had so far, uh, see what we have coming up. We're going to hopefully have some guests coming on soon. And then uh, over on the Patreon channel, we, it's, we, we still have not done our film theory and chill for this month. It's coming up very closely, so... Uh, if you want to be a part of, if you want to listen to that again, I, it, we got some rave reviews. I I even heard one person who listened to the chill before even touching the film theory, which honestly is not the direction I wanted most people to go. <laughs> you, know, you float your own boat. No, unthinkable. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, we also got some good uh, Wanda-related content coming up on the Patreon soon. I won't spoil exactly what that is, but. Uh, Barbara Loden heads should definitely make sure they're patrons of uh, of cinema. Yeah, there's I, th- there's some kind of exciting stuff going on on that front. Um, yeah, we've been trying to get some some Patreon stuff going so that uh, those who are supporting the the, uh, the podcast and the website, you know, get their get their patrons worth for it. So uh, yeah, check it out there, patreoncom slash cinematary. Let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. Ash, I'm going to toss it over to you. Yeah. um, So last night I watched the movie Pride. It came out in 2014. Um, I think it's English somewhere in the UK. Anyway, um, yes, it is. It is English. But um, the director is Matthew Warkus. Um, But it's basically about this group of gay men and lesbians um, in the 80s. Um, in London, who form a group called um, Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners. And um, basically, in Wales, there were miners on strike. and um, Miners, miners with, an with an E. E. Yes. <laughs> yes, not, not underage people. Um, <laughs> let's, let's be clear. Um, the, the gays were not uh, fighting for the underage people. They were fighting for the... Uh, the miners with an E, thank you, Andrew, um, who were on strike and, um, who were experiencing a lot of like police brutality and other, you know, shit like that. Um, that, uh, is not good. And, um, so anyway, um, the, basically these gays and lesbians, um, realized that they had a sort of common enemy with these miners um, because Margaret Thatcher was um, then in power. And um, so they decided to start raising money for the miners and sort of team up with them to fight the power. And it's a really badass, true story um, of a thing that happened in the UK in the 80s. And um, 
it's sort of interesting. Um, as a movie, it's like, um, it's really, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's sort of like one of those movies that like, uh, to watch it, it's sort of clearly made to like tell a true story. It's not like, you know, like an art auteur, like, you know, trying out his like camera tricks, you know, it's, it's just a, like a very straightforward, um, like movie making experience, but the story is like really good. Um, and so that sort of makes the movie, but, um, it's, it's sort of an interesting movie to watch right now because there's sort of a similar thing happening in Kentucky where I live. Um, there are miners on strike in Eastern Kentucky right now. And there are a group of radical, um, activists, um, many of whom are queer, um, who are supporting them and teaming up with them, um, with their strike and their protest. And, uh, I actually saw a post on Instagram of, um, uh, the, um, queer alliance at the, picket line, they were wearing the same, um, t-shirts as the, uh, original LGSM, um, team made in the UK in the eighties. Uh, and they, you know, make in the movie and stuff. And so, um, it's very interesting that, you know, like groups now are still taking inspiration from this sort of original group of, um, gay activists, who um, decided that, you know, yes, like gay rights are important, but there are more causes that like we, we need to fight for. We have things in common with other people and it's important to um, be there for other people. Um, and, you know, eventually they'll be there for us. And um, so it's, it's interesting that, you know, this is still happening literally, you know, miles away from me. I, it seems like a thing that I see on Twitter a lot as well, and the opposite happening of people kind of squabbling and dividing amongst themselves between folks who are interested in um, like identity-based activism and folks who are interested in economic-based activism. And I, this is a movie that I've not seen, but I'm interested in to see the like historical melding of the two, right? The the solidarity between folks who need. Uh, like protections as a class, like as a class of, of minority people and a class of uh, economically disenfranchised people, like those those aims are kind of the same aim, I think. So, yeah, it seems really, really interesting. Yeah, overall, I think it did a good job. I think it's a really positive movie. And I haven't read up on the, like, true story enough to know, like... Um, if, if the real story was as, you know, um, positive as the film is, I, I mean, there's obviously tension in their struggle in the movie, but, um, I guess the tone of the movie is very, um, uplifting and empowering and which is good. And I'm, I'm, I'm not complaining. Uh, I'm very happy about it. I felt like really pumped by the end. I was like, I'm going to go like, <laughs> you know, um, join join the alliance um you know but uh, so excited yeah <laughs> no it, it'll like the movie will get you pumped for real but um i i you know it it does also make me wonder like you know like was it 
even harder for them in real life to sort of break the barrier of like prejudice, um, you know, in rural Wales. So I don't know. It was a really great movie. Would recommend it's free on Amazon prime. Cool stuff. Um, we're going to Andrew and Michael, I'm going to toss it over to you all. Cause you have a good film to talk about to lead into our final chat. Michael, do you want to take this? You've seen it more recently than I have. Yeah, so um, this the movie we're referring to is called Charlie Says, um, which is about... Uh, it was released, I believe... Was it earlier this year, Andrew, or was it last year? It, it, is, a, it is a 2019 movie. Right. Okay, so fresh off the... Um, hot off the presses. I watched it uh, via digital rental, um, so it's available that way. Um, but anyway, Charlie Says is about um, the Manson family, you know, the kind of notorious cult in the late 1960s in the L.A. area that eventually culminated in a series of murders, kind of notoriously. Um, and this movie's sort of unique spin is that it follows the perspective of one of the Manson girls from her like recruitment into or uh, indoctrination into the group uh, through the um, the murders of course but then also it um, intercuts this with uh, life in prison after they've been caught and um, incarcerated and all that um, and in prison there's a grad student um, who is coming in and essentially like educating the the Manson girls about um, or, or deprogramming the girls I guess might be a better word um, from their you know Charlie Manson ideology and so the movie is kind of this cross-cutting between these prison scenes where the uh, girls and specifically one um, girl, Leslie Van Houten, um, kind of come to terms with the fact that they have been part of a cult and have done pretty atrocious things on behalf of that cult um, and this cult leader, uh, good old Charles, Charles Manson. Um, and then also cutting back to the actual action at Spawn Ranch. Um, where we see like how they got to the place of being so susceptible to uh you know a guy who said that the white album told him that he would lead a white supremacist group after a race war and become a new slave driver so um it's it's i i think it's an interesting um and pretty engaging movie um andrew uh what's your take on it um I liked it a lot, um, or I guess I, it's more fair to say that I liked it a little when I first saw it, and I have it has grown in my estimation in time since seeing it, especially seeing how the Manson girls are treated in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we're going to get into in full spoilers here in just a minute. Um, I guess my reservations about it originally were that I, I feel like it was not tight enough on a structural level. It has this... Uh, flashback structure, like you said, um, where we are just following these these conversations that are happening during these deprogramming therapy sessions, and it's flashing back to, to various points that are relevant uh, to the conversation. And it doesn't necessarily feel like there is a arc to um, what we are seeing in flashback. It all feels kind of disconnected. Um, and so the movie can feel a bit... Um, 
I don't know, incohesive by the time you're you're finished with it. Um, but I do think the the portrait that this movie paints of the Manson girls is a really uh, thorough, multifaceted, and uh, and to a certain extent sympathetic one. Um, to and it does a great job looking at these characters as characters who, um, or not not characters, looking at these people as people who are not wholly uh, responsible for their actions because of the ways in which they were uh, manipulated um, and, and brainwashed and drugged and uh, kind of being puppeteered by by this really um, delusional figure. And I think that the movie is most valuable as a sort of counter-programming, uh, which I guess is appropriate considering the movie is, is about counter-programming. Uh, it, it's a great piece of counterprogramming when comp- when considered next to the many 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 uh, sensationalist sensationalist movies that have been made about uh, Charles Manson. You know the one that that feels most imme- like comes most immediately to mind is The Haunting of Sharon Tate, which I think came out this year or maybe last year. Movie that a lot of people took against for the ways in which it just really played up the Manson killings as this exciting horror movie premise. And I think that there are dozens of movies uh, that have done that. Uh, And this movie really centers the human drama, uh, really centers uh, the women, kind of uh, demystifying them, demythologizing them as this this pack of rabid hippies. and I, I think that it, it just has um, has great nuance to it in the way that it uh, handles this characterization. Um, and, you know, the, the movie is not bad to look at either. Mary Heron, director of American Psycho, um, has, has got, captured some, some really great images here. Um, and I think the acting is excellent across the board as well. Um, there is some some real unnerving madness to some of those uh, uh, drug drug trip and orgy sequences in the middle of this film uh, that have really stuck with me. Um, so, anything else to say about it, Michael? Before we kind of transition into the Tarantino, this maybe gets into the structural problems you were talking about. But I felt that yeah, kind of a big disconnect about my engagement between the, the, what part of the story we were in. So, I agree that the movie is really visually interesting, and there's great acting when we're dealing with the flashbacks on the um, on the ranch, which is a probably the majority of the movie. I didn't actually time, but there's more of the movie spent, I think on the, you know, the cult end of things than on in the prison end of things. Um, but I was a little disappointed with what the movie ends up doing with the prison material, which for me, and this is sort of like, um, I guess maybe not everyone has the same sort of priorities as I do, but I was more interested in seeing the deprogramming than I was seeing the programming because I think I agree. I think that it's really highly, um, it's been highly covered, like how cult indoctrination works and specifically the Manson families, uh, has, you know, it's, it's really familiar territory, you know, even though it's being presented through like a kind of, um, a point of view that's not often, uh, elevated, which is like uh, that of a single one of the Manson girls. I, it feels like really 
I don't know. I you, you don't necessarily go to a movie like this looking to learn something, but everything I saw as far as like what happens with the on the Manson end of things was not surprising to me. So I was very interested as far as the style goes, but then it's like, okay, we have Charles Manson who's veering from these this kind of affectionate progressive stance guy to the you know these kind of horrifying abusive behaviors and oh this is causing you know conflicting feelings and and feelings of attachment that are toxic and you know etc and like that's all important in the scope of reality but as far as the movie goes the text of those scenes felt standard for me but they were the most engaging parts of the movie and then you get to the prison part which i feel like is much less uh, well-trodden as far as like what happens to the Manson girls afterwards and I felt like the movie was pretty flat in those scenes um, even though that's the more interesting material. Yeah, I agree I, I think that the ratio we're getting here is basically 70-30 uh, 70% uh, flashback, 30% frame story and I, I do agree that it could benefit from a more of a 50-50 balanced uh, treatment and I guess it's not just that, but like what happens in the prison scenes, which I thought was kind of, um, it it feels too too easy. Like I I mentioned this in my letterbox review, but there's a sequence in which like one that it feels like very programmatic, where like there's a flashback to the ranch where we see the guy uh, Charlie Manson talking about how um, there's they're going to incite a race war, and then they're the black people won't know how to rule themselves after the race war. So that's when Charlie Manson's going to swoop in and be the you know, plantation owner, basically. Um, and then it flashes forward to the girls kind of like parroting that to the grad student. And then the grad student is like, let me bring in my black colleague. And the black colleague comes in and basically says nothing more than just what Charlie Manson said was racist, which is like all true. But also if you're like part of a cult and have been indoctrinated in this ideology, like the work of deprogramming ideology is way more, it's it's much thornier and stickier than just simply having someone come and counter your narrative. Um, you know, if, if all it took was for, like, a black person to say that's racist to deprogram a racist, I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that would be different on, like, cable news, for example. And I, I just feel like the movie sometimes takes the easy way out as far as depicting the deprogramming and not really getting into the weeds as much as it could. Maybe that's just me that's more interested in that. And I wonder how, how well that's even documented. Um, well, I guess it's based on a memoir, right, of, of somebody who did work with them. Is it the not the, girls. the uh, grad student character that we have? Is, is she the one who? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So you would think that with that, um, with that source material, you would be able to flesh out that section of the movie a lot. Yeah, but I, I can see someone else getting, you know, pretty engaged with this movie. I, I think just because of stuff I'd already read and maybe just my own interests. Yeah, you have a lot of familiarity with the Manson story and you also like fundamentally are not interested in it, right? Like this was actually one of the first um, encounters I've had with the like the the actual history of what happened. I, I know of Charles Manson as like a cultural figure just through osmosis, um, but it was it was fairly educational for me. Yeah, and I I think my disinterest is I'm kind of um, this idea that he represents like the counterculture and that the Manson murders are the the end of the counterculture is um, 
a really limited idea, I feel like, because A, like, as this movie shows pretty well, like, this guy is countercultural in, like, the very broadest sense, but he's not really aligned with, like, you know, um, tr- like, the flower children or, or black panthers or any of the like you know proliferation of like truly progressive like countercultural figures he's simply just like a a deluded man who is also kind of self-interested and has these really kooky ideas about things and so the the way that this is like becomes like a flashpoint for like well, this is the moment that the counterculture died and not like, you know, the assassination of uh, the Black Panther leaders or not like the, um, you know, even Altamont, you know, is a much more interesting way to frame the end of the the death of the counterculture than the Manson family, which is really just, it seems so secluded and isolated and it's only famous because they killed famous people, I feel like. And I don't find that very compelling. It's like a tragedy and awful, but as a metaphor for like the sixties, I don't think it's really that interesting. Just for the sake of time, let's, I think that's a good uh, point to transition on to, to once upon a time in Hollywood, which is the, the latest from, from Quentin Tarantino. I talked a little bit about it a couple weeks ago, just for reference point. uh, It's a kind of sprawling 1969 LA movie that follows uh, three the three main characters that it follows is are played by Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. Um, Michael, you, you seem to be much more of a fan of this movie, so I'm curious as somebody who is not interested in that uh, that that kind of socio reading of the Manson killings. What 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 about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was so appealing to you? Um, yeah, and I just. First of all, I, I'm not really. I feel like I'm not equipped to defend people against the criticisms they're making of, or defend the movie against criticisms people are making of the movie. Because I, I kind of agree with most of those criticisms. It's just a matter of, I kind of found the movie really engaging and and warm. Like it's it's a really affectionate movie, in a lot of ways that reminds me of uh, Jackie Brown as far as like what mode Tarantino's in. You know, kind of walking around L.A. with these characters who are on the twilight of. The prime of their lives, I guess, um, and that that's kind of weird and disarming for me. And it's it has a lot of the kind of uh, know it all like elusive stuff that Tarantino normally does. Like you know, we drive past movie billboards and there's pop music and and all that sort of stuff. But it, it felt a lot less smarmy than Tarantino movies can sometimes be, um, and so I. I was on on one level. I was just kind of enthralled on like a, a surface reading of it, um, and on uh, you know I, I think it, it's just a I found it just really watchable moment by moment. Um, the uh, all the kind of three principal actors, which are um, Brad Pitt, who's playing a stuntman, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who's playing the actor who Brad Pitt works for as a stuntman. Um, and then Margot Robbie, who plays Sharon Tate, like I thought, like all three of them were like uh, extremely not just fun to watch, but also like I got engaged in who they were, and I felt like I knew who these characters were and enjoyed spending my time with them um, in a way that's not often true of me in Tarantino movies. There's a lot of times like a distance where you're kind of caught up in the the gymnastics of the dialogue and these like twisty conversations, but you don't really care about like, for example, like Vince Vega in um, Pulp Fiction, or at least I don't. Um, 
but I, I like legitimately like you know kind of cared about these characters and there's like these nice like kind of sad scenes where it's not it's not really like the lamenting of the bygone era of Hollywood um, it's more like the specifics of like these characters that uh, I just find kind of beguiling and at the same time um, feeling kind of uh, uneasy that I'm so beguiled by it which gets into like I guess the more subtextual reading of it which is that like uh, this movie is kind of really thorny and tricky in ways that I think a lot of for a lot of people is kind of the crux of the criticism of the movie um, but I thought it was I don't know it, it hasn't really left me uh, the way that like I'm endeared to these characters that the movie kind of goes out of its way to show our at least in the case of Brad Pitt's character and to a lesser extent Leonardo DiCaprio's character um, they're shown to be kind of like toxic and dangerous in ways that I, I can't really get a grip of what the movie wants me to think about that but the juxtaposition of this these kind of like charming like tragic comic characters juxtaposed with like you know really gruesome murder both like alleged and like real that we see on the screen is disconcerting in a way that at least for me kind of it, it fits into my headspace you know really well you know Roman Polanski is kind of like a ghost that ships in and out of this movie and it kind of almost felt like how I feel about that you know where I love Rosemary's Baby I love Repulsion and you know the apartment trilogy while at the same time knowing what the the man that created it this really uneasy feeling you know where Roman Polanski who eventually goes on to rape someone makes kind of like a really staunchly anti-rape movie in Rosemary's Baby feels similar to like when I I guess how I felt about like specifically Brad Pitt's character who like someone who probably murdered his wife it's like almost definitely murdered his wife but also is sort of this cowboy force for like vigilante justice at one point and that's just really uneasy well it's 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 uh, you know you made a good point of that it's not really like lamenting the the golden age of hollywood as much as because all it's not like you are watching you know leonardo dicaprio's character at this point in his career in the movie is is very much on the downtrodden you know you have this long extended sequence with him and a character played by al pacino uh, and Al Pacino is pretty much just like, yeah, you're, uh, you're, uh, you're on the downswing. You're playing a, you're playing a heavy and everything, you know, they're, they're just watching the image of you get beat up again and again and again. And, and you can see that kind of wear on them. And I agree with you. It's a, it's a, it's a weird position to be in because yeah, on one end, the, they're, I don't think that they're good people, at least the Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio characters. Like, they're not good people, but it's also playing with this concept of... Uh, it's playing with this concept of, of movies and television where they, like, at, at the end of the day, yeah, Brad Pitt's character probably killed his wife. Uh, there's no definitive proof it's it seems to be kind of like a uh you know the talk around the sets and it's one of the reasons why he doesn't get a lot of work late in his career but at the same time brad pitt is movie star obnoxiously charismatic in this role like it's so good he is so freaking magnetic in this movie like i 
don't this isn't really my idea i saw other people talking about it i guess on letterboxd but like this movie feels like heavily homoerotic primarily because of brad pitt's presence in the movie and how often he has like no shirt on and like the movie just like languishes over his like movie star body Um, but but i i I digress at the same time though i can't i'm kind of like you i i i hear a lot of the criticisms about this movie and i'm like yeah no that i i can i see that i can definitely see that but at the same time i I, this movie has been in my mind for the last you know week and a half two weeks or whatever since i've seen it and i still i i i want to go watch it again like i think it's i think it's good but uh andrew i know that you were as hot on this movie so i'm curious to hear your your opinion on it (laughs) go for it andrew yeah you guys have thrown out so many thoughts that I want to respond to, but I'm going to have a hard time like organizing all my thoughts in this one coherent. That's fine. Uh, my, no offense, Michael talked for a long so time. So, I mean, yeah, Michael's, <laughs> I think me and Michael agree on a lot of stuff. The problem is like what gets prioritized and how we feel about this movie, right? Like, for Michael, it seems like the, the minute by minute pleasures of the text, uh, enjoying watching Leo DiCaprio act a specific scene, you know. Think finding uh, uh, um, you know finding I don't know it it, interesting to to think about the way that Tarantino is like framing men in a way that in in a new way in his his filmography or whatever is is like a, a minute by minute compelling element but then whenever you think about this movie more broadly or what it's saying like underneath those those like surface level moments it starts to get troubling and for me the subtext just so outweighs the text that it is hard for me to even then go back and find pleasure in the text after that point right like there are there are scenes and characters and, and performances i really enjoyed in this movie i loved um seeing Leo DiCaprio on set acting like a kind of mediocre actor. Like I'm not usually a big fan of Leo DiCaprio, but I thought he, he nailed the just, I don't know the, the kind of nervous grandstanding of these scenes. Um, and I also loved the, the almost wordless performance of Margot Robbie at the, the movie theater. But when you zoom out and look at what this movie is doing, I, I do not appreciate or enjoy it. Like, I think that uh, there's like so many different places we could go in this conversation that I, I'm having a hard time picking just one. Um, maybe we can start with the Manson girl since we just talked about Charlie Says. Um, in this movie, the Manson girls are this is this is another like Tarantino revisionist history movie right like uh, inglorious bastards this is the spoiler part by Django the way oh it we're in full spoiler territory um when the manson family shows up to kill Char- sharon tate um they mistakenly go in the wrong house they don't and brad they don't actually well, mistakenly no, they don't go, go in the wrong house, house. They leo dicaprio yeah. causes a scene and they decide they're going to go in his house specifically because they say um, he is a TV cowboy who taught America that murder is cool, and so they're going to get their revenge by murdering him in a cool way, which seems to be, as Mike Thorne pointed out in his letterbox review, seems to be Tarantino commenting on, like, uh, quote-unquote PC culture or people, people uh, pointing at Tarantino and saying, like, the violence in your movies is creating for a more violent society. Um, 
And they get to be this punching bag that Brad Pitt's character just brutalizes. Um, and this is the violence in this scene is reveled in. I mean, uh, Tarantino is known for for violent scenes. You know, the the ear lopping off scene in Reservoir Dogs is maybe the best example to go back to. But in most of them, the violence is to a certain degree uncomfortable, um, and and it's mostly cathartic in in scenes like the Nazis blowing up in the theater and in Glorious Bastards, when there is some sort of political subtext to what he's doing. But here, it it is just, it comes uh, uh, fast, um, it com- and it's um, done, done with such, like, verve and style. And in my theater, the audience was, like, laughing and clapping as it's happening, as you're seeing, like, a woman get her face beat into a fireplace mantle again and again and again. And, like, seeing this right after watching Charlie Says the week before and knowing these are, like, brainwashed victims of this guy who you hardly ever see in the actual movie. Charles Manson gets one scene, and he is doing something so inconsequential in that scene. You never hear anything about his actual like ideology or the way that he's manipulating these girls. It's just like a cipher for Tarantino to talk about, you know, the the like you said, Michael, thinking about the the Manson killings as the end of the '60s and the hippie movement erasing um, what was what was great about classic Hollywood, um, and specifically looking at it through that new lens of like anti political correctness, anti like uh, criticizing violence in media, um, and there's a, a critic Alonzo Duralde also pointed out that there's like a serious gender imbalance in how that violence is doled out. Um, when the Manson girls show up, they show up with Tex, one of the male members of the cult, and Tex gets chewed up by a dog, um, and that is not shot with nearly the sense of like purient pleasure that the violence against the women is done with. So it's not just, hey, we hate the Manson killings, they're murderers, they're bad, we don't have to sympathize with them. It's like we're enjoying taking like causing bodily harm to these women much more so than we're enjoying causing bodily harm to this man who is by the way doing the exact same thing um and i think that when you when you focus on that and kind of look at other moments in the movie where tarantino is tackling gender um it is it is really troubling like he likes he he really likes sharon tate um because she's like beautiful and innocent and she doesn't talk a lot um but you know whenever you see for example i don't know uh leo dicaprio's new wife that he brings back from italy like most of the scenes that you see her in it's like a comic cut to her like doing something kind of obnoxious or embarrassing like her snoring really loudly on the plane back to America or her like kind of making a fool of herself whenever she tries to defend herself from the Manson girls. Um, and I, and the same is true for, for example, Brad Pitt's wife, uh, some of the Manson girls, uh, who have described as being treated kind of like zombies in this movie. Um, I also kind of want to talk about the, the very charitable readings that have been given to this film by people who are doing these real deep dives um, on like the relationship between 
the dialogue and the subtext and the broader theme of the movie, uh, talking about things like, you know, uh, Brad Pitt's character or DiCaprio's character will talk about this one thing, this one mechanic of movie magic, and then you'll see it happen later, and you're supposed to know that it's fake, and you're supposed to criticize it through that lens. I think that this this is being a little too charitable. I think that some of that stuff might be in the movie, but I think I fundamentally see Tarantino as a guy who films stuff he thinks is cool and doesn't think that hard about it. Um, and if we're talking about like relationships between dialogue, like information and dialogue, and like information we're giving visually. I think that there are two moments that I want to flag up. Maybe we can talk about them. One is when Brad Pitt's character picks up one of the Manson girls as a hitchhiker um, and then eventually goes uh, to the to the uh, ranch. Um, there's this dialogue scene between them in the window of his car um, where she's like leaning into his window and talking to him. And the camera is like behind her ass. And she is in these Daisy Duke shorts. And we are just like getting a full view of everything. Um, And it just like keeps cutting back to that. Um, And then later on in that scene, she offers to give Brad Pitt a blowjob while he's driving. And he asks how old she is. And you find out she's underage. So it's like only after the audience has got off on looking at her behind that we then find out that she's a minor. And... I don't know. I don't think that there is actually any like deep subtextual meaning being conveyed there. I think that's just like Tarantino getting away with being kind of sleazy. Um, and then the other the other thing that I would come to is like the the Brad Pitt changing the antenna scene, right? Where he he takes off his shirt and like you're supposed to be enjoying the fact that Brad Pitt's like a 50 year old man who has this ridiculously good body and Tarantino is like shooting him in this homoerotic way and that, that he's never done in films before. Um, and like Brad Pitt's character is cool and you like him and he's funny and he's like this charismatic kind of like freewheeling stoner guy. And it is in that sequence when he's changed the antenna with his shirt off that we then get a flashback and then inside that a flashback of him about to kill his wife and we see his and we don't see him kill his wife because that might make us dislike him what we see is his wife nagging him about the fact that they're on a boat and she's bored and there's nothing to do and she's just going on and on and on and on and on it's just completely unsympathetic Uh, portrayal of this character and then it cuts away right before he's about to actually do anything the implication being she had it coming she deserved this all we see is the reason why she dies not reckoning with her actual death and that comes right after we're getting this visual information of brad pitt with his shirt off and thinking man this guy is so cool so i i just think that uh the warmth that is being extended here is not warmth for these individual characters it is warmth for this bygone era and this like very patriarchal bygone era of like tv cowboys and stuntmen and and just like guys who had money living in los angeles um and didn't really give a shit about (laughs) whoever else was you know being harmed by their lifestyle i just said a whole lot of things um, in reactions to any of that I'll stuff. I'll react to the last thing you said, which is that it's a nostalgia for the bygone era. Um, 
I think for me at least, and I guess, you know, this is super subjective. I guess I don't really know what Tarantino thinks about all this, but the stuff that these actors are making is kind of shitty, right? There's not really an admiration for the what they create. It's like, def- I, I feel like it's an admiration for the people. I disagree. I disagree because I do think that you are supposed to, whenever you see Leo DiCaprio give like the good performance on the set, you, that's after we've seen all the, the grief and inner turmoil he's put himself through to get that performance. And that is intercut with Sharon Tate watching herself on screen and just like being so happy and grateful that she's a part of the Hollywood machine and that other people are enjoying her work. So it's not that they're making great art or anything. It's that like the fact the fact of doing the work of working in Hollywood is like this beautiful thing to be admired. I think um, and I yeah, go ahead. So I I kind of feel like so, like, you, the two scenes you mentioned where, like, Leonardo DiCaprio manages to give kind of a great scene uh, on the set of this TV Western. Um, and then the other one where Sharon Tate has been in a, like, a Dean Martin feature as a supporting cast. And she's going and watching herself in the theater. I think neither of those scenes are actually about what they're creating, though. They're about how people react to how, what they're creating. So, like, in the Margot Robbie slash Sharon Tate in the theater, she's not watching the movie. She's looking around at the people around her, seeing, am I liked? Am I doing a good job? Um, and she doesn't... Well, it's everything to- around it, right? It is the, the build-up to making the thing, and then it's the audience reaction to making the thing. And both of those Tarantino sees as very valuable. Which, like, I don't disagree with him. Um, but it's like that couched in this larger framing of like the end of an era and the end of a certain kind of masculinity. And again, like the brutalizing and trivializing of women, um, in this film is like, I, I can't, I don't trust it, you know? It's, it's dissonant. And I guess our disagreement is that I find the dissonance kind of compelling, you know? I mean, we could talk about movies tonight, today, and it's not quite the same thing, but, like, you know, uh, there's a lot of shitty things about, like, the movie industry today, but we're here on a podcast talking about oh, for new sure. movies yeah. kind of appreciatively, and I, I guess I kind of feel like that this movie works in a similar way in that, like, the movie's not completely uncritical of the era that it's in but it enjoys the the culture of the moment you know enjoy there's a sort of like nostalgia for like a mono culture that i think like we all kind of have like you know there are things that about the modern era that we hate and we kind of feel nostalgic about the past while at the same time recognizing that in the past there are kind of horrible things as well uh so i i don't know i you know the the scene where brad pitt um is taking off his shirt and then we flash back to see you know how he murdered his wife um i don't disagree with you that the wife comes off poorly but i also feel like that it's a i don't know the the he so he's got like a harpoon gun right and he's like pointing it at his wife and i found that really upsetting and i don't know what tarantino thinks about that but i didn't really find the scene justifying her murder i find it kind of upsetting that this dude that is so cool and more than anything in the present, he's like very level-headed and calm. Um, to see in the past, like him, like kind of using that level-headedness and calmness to like cold-bloodedly, you know, prepare to murder his wife. Like, there's something really disconcerting about that. Right. 
But then when when we when we flash forward to him brutalizing the Manson girls, I don't think that there's I mean, maybe maybe your read is different than the read of my theater, but people were really into the fact that this cool guy Brad Pitt was beating up these women. Um, it was not dissonance of ah, this guy's maybe taking this a little so too far. I don't so I think the movie Tarantino, whoever we want to ascribe it to, I think that it wants the Manson family and I guess specifically the Manson girls, like you point out, to get it. Like it hates it hates the Mansons because they killed Sharon Tate and her baby. And like to be honest, like that is a really deeply I don't know. As someone who's a father, imagining if someone had killed my wife and unborn child when it happened, like, I don't know how I would feel about the people who did that, regardless of their position within, like, a cult that had brainwashed people. And But also, like, Tarantino said he didn't know anything about uh, Sharon Tate or, or, uh, or any... I don't think he even... I, I'm not going to speculate. But he said that he had never seen a Sharon Tate movie. He didn't know anything about Sharon Tate before he decided to make this movie. And I, so I don't think this comes from a place of, oh, I love and am sad about Sharon Tate. It's, I want to look at the hinge point in American culture when the 60s died. Um, and like Sharon Tate is kind of like an idol we're worshiping in, in, uh, um, in place. I feel like it's the Hollywood, when the Hollywood studio system died, not the 60s in general, which I think makes some of the Manson stuff a little bit more relevant because the Manson stuff is all about media. Like on Spawn Rants, they're all just watching TV. Uh, they talk about movies as like Reservoir Dogs when they're walking up to the Tate house. You know, I I think it's less about like the 60s as a broader sociological concept and more about the 60s as a movie concept uh, that it's lamenting. But I, I totally agree that it revels in the violence. And I, I guess my larger point was there is a part of me that understands why people who murdered a, a woman who was pregnant begging for her life, like why you would want to see that happen. Like there is a sort of cathartic, like Old Testament style justice to that. But at the same... Well, if you are, if that is all you need, if you just need to brutalize these people, why not brutalize the guy just as bad? You know, it just seems to fit the theme of the gender problem of the movie. I, no, I, I agree. I, I agree that he's... It's a treating a symptom and not the, the cause, but... Um, my other point was that, like, I don't know that if the... I, I, I don't know motive to the movie, but knowing that Brad Pitt killed his wife earlier casts a pall over that last scene. Um, you know, violence against women is uh, something that the movie deals with in really slippery ways. So, like, maybe I'm the only one who thinks this, but to know that the same intensity of violence that... Uh, Brad Pitt's character uses to defend Sharon Tate and all the other people who were killed by the Manson family is the same like part of him that allowed him to kill his wife is that it 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 resists like a clean reading as far as like how I feel about it I don't know if the movie like like I said I don't know what the intent is it's it's really slippery yeah I think I would I would have to to get pointed to formal qualities of the movie that cast doubt upon how we're supposed to feel about Brad Pitt's character. Because it seems to me that formally he is always cool before we learn about him killing his wife, 
after we learn about him killing his wife, before we see him kill the man's but, and girls. But I guess after like, we see him kill and again, this and is me, but like formal qualities are only informed by like a sort of uh, tactileness of what we can get of the characters and and a knowledge that we have of the characters. So like, you know, uh, to know that Brad Pitt killed his wife informs how the. F- the formal qualities of the movie make me think about Brad Pitt's character. Like, I I cannot unlearn that he killed his wife, and so when I see formal qualities making him cool, that is in my mind as knowledge. I, I guess my, my thing is just that formal qualities are, like, inherently more persuasive, right? Even if you're getting all this, like, textual information about why you shouldn't like this guy, if the movie is framing him as super cool, most audience members are going to walk out thinking he's super cool because that's just how the balance of of cinema works. I I, I mean, maybe. I mean, like you... There's a lot of movies you can point to that I think the broad consensus is people who romanticize these characters are wrong and it's their fault that they're... Yeah. Fight Club, for example, another Brad Pitt movie. Yeah. Or, I mean, I was thinking, like, um, A Clockwork Orange, which, like... Yeah. Many, like, broadly considered, like, you know, there's irony in this um, depiction of these characters and in their point of view, and we are not supposed to revel in their their raping and and their, you know, committing ultraviolence or whatever. And so, like, we... I guess what I'm saying is, like... I don't know that texts and and form are like interchangeable, like you're, or not interchangeable, are separable, like you're saying. Like text informs how we view the form, and vice versa. So to introduce a textual element to it informs how, at least for me, I engage with the form, and I, I, that's all I can really speak to is my own experience. But I had a hard time buying the Brad Pitt is cool like purely cool once I got the uh, the murder bit. Uh, I would say kind of as a closing note here, regardless on your feelings on uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, whether uh, you agree with me or Michael or someone else, um, you should definitely watch Charlie Says. Um, it is, I think it is kind of required viewing for the discourse around this movie. Um even if it is not going to be like one of the best movies of the year, it is really interesting and it is like a a sort of essential vitamin in this this conversation and in the the treatment of the the Manson um, you know, phenomenon. So uh, more broadly, um, so check that out. It is on Amazon and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in theaters. Yeah, uh, we're gonna take a quick break. We will be back talking Putney Swope after this. Cinematariats, this is your co-host Lydia Creech with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we definitely want your money. We still want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema, but now we're getting into the Patreon game, baby. We've brought on a lot of new voices to contribute to the site, and we want to honor our responsibility to compensate all these smart people for their hard work. To help us out, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary to sign up at the $5 a month level. In exchange, our patrons will get an exclusive bonus episode every month, weekly shoutouts on each episode of the show, and the ability to dictate a movie for us to cover eventually. If money's tight, we get it. There are still a few things you can do that we would greatly appreciate. 
First, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's free to help us reach more listeners. <laughs> Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to Zach at Cinematary.com. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, to let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we put out every week. So, to recap... Review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, share with your friends and family, and sign up to be a patron. We would truly appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. It started last weekend at the L. Howard Game. back with part two of episode 260 of cinematary in this part we will be continuing our young critics watch old movie series with 1969's putney swope it was directed and written by robert downey senior and the film stars arnold johnson joe madden antonio fargus and alan garfield when its chairman dies an advertising firm's executive board must elect someone to fill the position each member unable to vote for himself casts a secret ballot for putney swope the firm's only black executive assuming he wouldn't receive any votes from the other members but once in power swope makes radical changes to the firm like keeping only one white employee and refusing to advertise harmful products all under the film's new firm's new moniker truth and soul incorporated calling the film a kind of black marx brothers satire uh in quotes uh downey claimed it would feature quote about 200 actors 80 percent of whom are negroes however according to several sources including the uh october 18th issue of the of variety downey's production company refused to sign a contract with the screen actors guild and the union threatened disciplinary action against any member involved in the film claiming that quote ps productions is exploiting the actors by hiring them at substandard wages and conditions l errol j along with eight other sag members left the production and non-union actor arnold johnson replaced him Producer Floyd Peterson told Variety that since Putney Swope required 300 extras for mostly weekend scenes, there was no way to maintain union requirements, which were included, quote, double pay overtime on a $200,000 budget. He rejected SAG's suggestion that the production severely cut its roster in order to maintain the union pay scale. Uh, SAG did not have enough African-American members to satisfy the film's casting requirements, nor enough of the, quote, New York types that Downey wanted. The producers likened Putney Putney Swope to an off-Broadway stage show, which had a, a separate wage standard from mainstream Broadway. They sought a deferred payment plan with SAG actors, who would eventually receive the difference between their salaries and the, in the union scale when the film recouped its producers' investments. 
Uh, in an interview on the DVD version of the film, Downey states that Arnold Johnson had great difficulty memorizing and saying his lines during the film shoot. Downey says he was not concerned because he had developed a plan to dub in his own voice to replace Johnson's. According to the December uh, 1968, uh, December 29th, 1968 issue of the New York Times, the first day of shooting took place in a trash-littered alley in the Bowery section of Lower Manhattan, where Putney Swope's advertising agency was filming an advertisement for the Fanaway electric fan. To lend the scene authenticity, Robert Downey Sr. hired a real derelict for $10 and four bottles of wine and directed him to lie sleeping on a mound of trash. A method actor at heart, the derelict passed out after drinking his wine and delivered his per- performance perfectly. Uh, the Coen brothers, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, and Paul Thomas Anderson are all known to be big fans of the film, and Jane Fonda declared it a masterpiece to Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show in 1969. On whether or not this is his best film, Downey Sr. told Vice in 2014, oh no, but it's the one that got around and got distribution and a lucky rhythm. Uh, talking a little bit more about making the film, he said, when we made the film, nobody wanted to even put even put it out there and we lucked out because the last distributor who saw it in own theaters in new york said quote i don't get it but i like it let's do it we opened in one of those of of his theaters and got some great response and then on the tonight show jane fonda when talking about her brother's film easy rider mentioned putney swope the next day the next day the box office was up everywhere the new york daily news in 1969 said the called it the most offensive picture i've ever seen violently anti-negro anti-chinese anti-white including jews uh (laughs) got strangely anti-semitic there at the end um in 1969 the new york times called it funny sophomoric brilliant obscene disjointed marvelous unintelligible and relevant and in 1970, uh, the L.A. Times called it a very gaudy and exhilarating slam-bang satire, and they acknowledged that having already achieved, quote, a very large overground uh, commercial success elsewhere, the film was certain to be a smash here in L.A. Um, so shifting from one 1969 timeline to 1969 New York with Putney Swope, um, this is probably a difficult one to be like, this is how I feel and this is what I got out of this movie, but we'll do our best. Um, Ash, had you uh, seen this before? Were you able to, uh, to catch hold with what Putney Swope was putting out? Um, this was my first viewing. It was sort of something to settle into. Um, (laughs) I was to put it nicely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It, uh, the first, like, 15 minutes I didn't know like what I had come into and then the I mean the title doesn't come until like 15 minutes or 20 minutes into the movie which is like when Putney is put like in charge of the um company or whatever and I was like um I guess I I just sort of like got in the first few minutes I like settled into this um weird uh thing and then there was a dramatic change and it was a completely different thing and I was like oh my god what do I do it was very uh disconcerting yeah it's it's kind of funny because for it, it tosses you in immediately with the like the board 
meeting between all of these executives at this advertising firm and there's a little bit of a mention of Putney Swope I mean you see him over there again he's the only black executive there so he's he kind of stands out but at the same time you have this long table of all these kind of old men who kind of look the same <laughs> these old white men who all look the same kind of so you you don't really know who's uh, in charge or who's talking uh, over who and uh you open with this guy coming in and opening up a briefcase and then leaving. And then they said, yeah, that was $28,000 in order to try to sell the product. Uh, which is which is a nice lead in um but yeah it it definitely it shifts into just the uh the antics of putney swope taking over this advertising agency and kind of just going off the rails with his with their different ideas and different uh ways of advertising things um I don't know. I, I kind of going in, you, you, I, you know, I was kind of prepared that this was going to be a very off the wall movie. Um, and so I, I kind of just was like, all right, I'm just going to roll with whatever it, it gives me. Um, and I, I found it to be just, you know, incredibly entertaining and engaging the entire time because you're being tossed one these just random interactions between this just kind of medley of characters that are working in this advertising firm but then you also have cuts to the actual ad ads happening that also don't make any sense um and then uh and then you also have these sequences where uh you have these like white uh owners of different businesses coming to the ad firm to like pitch their ideas to Putney who's trying to fight off the harmful vices of what, what is it is it it's it's guns uh booze yeah war toys uh alcohol and was there a third one I war forgot toys. but there's but there's the stuff he's he, and, and they keep trying to pitch that to him I don't know I've tobacco yeah it, it, it's just it it's so oh tobacco uh, is the other one i don't know it's so aggressively counter what you what you're expecting constantly that there's something kind of admirable admirable about it um michael what did you make of the of the film this was my second time seeing it and i guess both times i felt basically the same which is that like there are times when I think it's like hilarious. Like all of the ads are basically like A plus material as far as I'm concerned. Like they're just they're just so great. And just these like long winding ads that end with like they're like shaggy dog stories but but advertisements. Um like I think those are great. I think like some of the especially towards the beginning, some of the satirical stuff where um uh Putney is like rebranding the ad agency is all like really hilarious and then like other stuff I'm just like I don't know I guess I always feel like so this movie's like less than 90 minutes but I always feel like that there's some part like toward the end where I just kind of start wishing like is this over yet I, I have a hard time connecting with it the whole way through like there are individual bits that are really great and then there are bits that I just I don't know it just, they just feel like they kind of wind on and lose their well, lose see, their flavor. I, I, that's that's kind of how I felt I, in anticipation of this because I know it was a movie that got compared to Putney Swope a lot. Was Sorry to Bother You, which came out last year, the Boots Riley satire, um, 
and I was watching it, and that's kind of my gripe with that movie is when it gets really inventive and satirical, it's great, but then it kind of loses steam for long for periods of time in that movie where you kind of, you just lose interest because it doesn't necessarily have the visual inventiveness and the play and the you know playful comedy that it's uh that it has in, in other moments. And Putney Swope, the thing I I appreciated more about that compared to sorry to bother you is that it's a little bit more consistent like it's constantly working on the same level that it's not trying to kind of bounce between these two different things it's it's the same it's it's under 90 minutes but it's this it it feels like it's going for the same uh type of mood the entire time um and that is just again it's just very irreverent and but at the same time just constantly giving the middle finger i mean like as the poster shows giving the middle finger to uh so many different things i mean were you able were you all able to pick up on just the kind of satirizing of um just advertising the advertising world in general or what it's kind of saying about uh black representation in media or just uh any sort of minority representation in media uh, through kind of the ads and how they approach it? That's another thing about the movie that I... I have some questions about that, and maybe it's just that I'm not uh, uh, knowledgeable enough or, or attuned enough to this movie's wavelength, but, like, there's some stuff that I get. Like, the movie ends with him, like, burning a bunch of money, and, like, I get that. Uh, you know, and I understand, like, some of the racial... Um, racially based satire at the beginning of the movie, but I, 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 I lose the thread of what the movie's trying to do with race, and especially some of the stuff like so, like Robert Downey Sr. playing like an extremely, I don't know if we would say it's like a stereotypical African American voice, but he's like dubbing his voice in as this like comically gruff, like, uh, caricature of something the whole time over like you know this this black actor and i'm not tracking with what that what's going on with that and then there's some of the other stuff in the movie itself that i don't track with even though it's like some of the parts i i understand like how you know it's kind of playing with like you know what uh you know how white people respond to you know this kind of black radical who's uh doing stuff in the agency and stuff um I don't know. You compared it to Sorry to Bother You, but I came out of Sorry to Bother You knowing maybe with too much detail what Boots Riley wanted me to think. And then this movie, I I got some question marks. Yeah, I feel similarly. um, Like towards the beginning, um, like that first advertising segment, what does the the dude keep saying? Something about his prostate? being very gross with that woman yeah it's just totally ridiculous but um and and uh putney just like runs like they all just you know run in and take over and they're like this you know this ain't it chief basically and um so i felt like that was sort of uh before they run in they're like well didn't they hear about you know the like new transition or like the change or whatever. And so I felt like that sort of, um, uh, like I understood the implications of that, but, um, 
yeah, like Michael was saying, I'm, as the film went along, I uh, sort of lost track. It, not completely, but, you know, it, it wasn't, like, as um, pointed as something like Sorry to Bother You, where it's like, okay, like, you know, workers' rights. Cool. You know. Do you feel like um, that kind of might be, in, in, in a way, and this is just me kind of working off the cuff, but that in, the, in a way that's kind of the point of it, that it starts to kind of lose that edge? It, because, I mean, it ends pretty much on Putney feeling like the business did what he wanted to, he wanted to, he, he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish uh, with, you know, with running this advertising firm. So he takes some money and leaves and the rest of it kind of burns. And that's, that's kind of how we get to that point is that you, as the movie kind of keeps this edge, like enters with just this edginess and this uh, really um, stringent social commentary, but it starts to kind of lose its way a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I'm just uh, over reading the, uh, the text there. No, I mean, I think I definitely get that. Like, there's like an element of like how radical ideas get uh, mainstreamed and normalized and then commodified that this movie kind of taps into and then Putney eventually abandons. And so like the that sort of big picture stuff I get, but then like some of the individual pieces, how they fit into that, I... I, I don't know. Like, again, like the dubbing voice is, is a really odd touch that I have no idea what to do with. Um, some of the ads as they go on, like, except for, like, you know, so for example, like there's the ad where it's essentially just like women in like see-through clothing, like jumping in slow motion, which I understand is like, okay, you know. <laughs> it's such a long one. It is too. like probably like three minutes long. <laughs> um, and like, I... There's, like, a certain, like, okay, you know, advertising uses sex, and so this is, like, using it to such a crass degree that it's absurd. Um, and I get that, but then, like, what does this say about, like, the ad, where Putney is taking the ad agency in its late stages? Is he just becoming another crass person? But then at the end, he, you know, kind of pieces out and blows everything up and... just the connective tissue I I don't know how it fits together maybe it doesn't have to you know maybe this is just one of these kind of freewheeling like movies where they're just throwing a bunch of stuff up and seeing what lands yeah no it's uh, I think I think the the most pointed satire in the whole thing is just kind of making fun of uh, like you said just the commodification of uh, or, or how advertising firms and kind of to a larger extent popular culture kind of tries to take what's permeating in society and the culture at large at that period of time and using that to uh, to sell something. You know, I think you you, you think of like the the uh, the fan commercial where the woman is just dancing in the in the alleyway and you have the smoke. <laughs> the as they said the derelict who is uh sleeping over there uh just killing it in his one role um like it it, it feels very of the period in in the way that she's you know dressed and danced and is trying to vibe with like this very hip cool up crowd but at the same time it's just this nonsensical ad and she's in the alley and she's in an alleyway for for some reason and 
but all at the same time you 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 like you're kind of like yeah like i i i might buy whatever this air conditioner that i can't eat uh <laughs> is um and it, and it's constantly playing with the fact that all of it's so all, all of these especially in the ads all of these are so drastically absurd but there is like there's something compelling within the absurdity that that at least garners your interest toward the the product um i can't even think of what the product was when what they're trying to sell for the uh uh <laughs> the the three minute long ad where the the half naked women are just bouncing in a room and then some guy in his underwear pops up i can't remember what they were trying to sell on that one but that one it's just i think it i think it's constantly kind of pushing the limits of what you will accept within product placement and advertising and then uh i don't know making you recognize that at the that at the end of the day, it has this very um, incredible sway over your psychological association with different um, with different items and different uh, kind of cultural touchstones. Um, it, it's just it's just kind of interesting how it's how it, it's almost to an extent uh, satirizing how popular culture is is able to be weaponized in in order to to sell more things and kind of assimilate you into a uh into the the kind of group that everybody else is in i wonder how i would have felt or how this movie played um i guess because because for most of my like media consuming life there's been like a pretty available presence of like surrealism and absurdity within mainstream attention you know like when i was little i could watch like ren and stimpy or spongebob uh and now you can tune into adult swim and see the, the kind of like decontextualization of some of the like uh you know really aggressive odd like patience testing stuff um that this movie kind of uses for political ends but i guess i maybe i'm used to seeing it used more just for like purely comedic ends um and that's maybe a barrier for me in the movie i I wonder it's it's just kind of idle speculation but like mainstream media is so much more comfortable with strangeness than it was in the 60s um and it i i wonder you know if I literally felt like this was nothing I'd ever seen before, if that would make me feel differently about what it has to say. Yeah. There's, I think that there is like this, um, there is this, this, well, one, I think the saturation, uh, with advertising. I mean, when Putney, when Putney Swope was made, you're thinking like television ads and billboards and things like that. I mean, I don't think you can even at this point anticipate like the, the type of uh, marketing that you know comes into place in today's much more digital landscape with with <laughs> with cookies and uh, you know 
data data siphoning and and all of these other these other factors you know i i I think that um to an extent while it is funny and satirical and uh enjoyable putney swope also feels somewhat of uh a little bit of a relic just because the uh the way that we interact with advertising and interact with um, some some other entity trying to sell us some sort of product has so has just kind of drastically shifted that um, I think that there's like this even even stronger personal component to it. You know, you think of how how um, how much companies like put into like directly targeting what you want to what you want to see and kind of playing to that note um that i think that some of the weirdness in this movie is kind of just is is playing to an audience that is kind of just doesn't have many other options and is just open to you know going to whatever and uh i don't know there's there's a little bit of of kind of a relic to it um when we've also seen like the cycle this movie goes through like play out in real life where you know some sort of ad campaign makes the ad seem kind of self-aware and hip and dangerous quote unquote but then eventually that just gets kind of run to the ground as a new establishment you know like uh, any number of like uh you know ad, ad campaigns like uh the um, I'm trying to think of good ones that are actually like good uses of like self-aware irony in ads, but like you know, there's a, there's a, there was that LeBron James Sprite commercial from a few years ago where LeBron James spends the entire Sprite commercial saying, "I won't tell you to drink a Sprite. I'm just asking you. Don't worry. I won't tell you to drink a Sprite." And like it's this whole thing that like the ad is aware of being an ad, um, and now it's just like another part of the landscape that like oh, okay like you know ads are embarrassed of actually advertising things um and well there's there's like this new level of self-awareness even on a like a social media scale you have like companies like like net these giant companies that have so have so much um you know so much of a hold on culture like a netflix or something like that that it, it, they they create almost personalities in a, in in a way so that you know you look at the way that Netflix kind of markets their content now and it's it, it it's it's as if they're they're trying to like word it or design it in a way that it's as if you it, like like in the way that Putney Swope it becomes like where he's almost just kind of like the Joe Blow off the street who becomes in charge of this advertising firm. It's kind of like the like like they're trying to target you as the Joe Blow who's a part of this. Like it's almost the what is it the hello fellow kids meme with Steve Buscemi. It's it's like this it's it's like this strange uh, trying to meld you know them coming down to you. But also you coming to them, it's it's strange. But I I apologize, I interrupted you. No, no, I don't I don't think you did. Uh, another example I just thought of is like that weird. I'm not even on Twitter, but I've I've heard about and like seen screenshots of like corporate twitters that have like personality and will interact with other corporate twitters in like snarky ways. And uh, so like the the Wendy's Twitter just acts like a regular person's Twitter in the sense that it like you know is kind of uh, tweeting insults and and just doing. You you know comedy routines um and and just that sort of thing just feels so 
like the the strange absurdity of like modern advertising is maybe like I it, it's something that this movie doesn't feel in touch with and that's not the movie's fault because it came out like 50 years ago but um it does I guess for me make the movie feel distant from what I recognize as advertising and so it just becomes like merely surreal um, rather than commenting directly on like what I'm aware of um with advertising even though i kind of like recognize in pieces like oh i see what you're doing there it it lacks the sort of like interaction with media that i'm like actually experiencing in the world yeah well it's 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 more satirizing like the culture around like advertising firms i mean uh i know andrew in his review um of this on letterbox describes it as like the Kanye West Yeezus album, uh, you know, meets Monty Python meets Mad Men. And it's kind of that Mad Men era in terms of how a business was run. And that's another thing that's like changed so drastically, like just the, the formation and infrastructure of like a business like the the infrastructure of the advertising firm and this would is so different from how like a google or an amazon or an apple are like made up um and yeah and going and kind of again going back to your your what you were talking about with like the the personalities of the 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 brands you also get into this weird um kind of person like like almost like personal relationship with with a brand not as as more of like this one part of your identity and i mean that yeah it's it's kind of this part of your identity rather than this uh this kind of in between for whatever products you want you know you think of how people interact with something like disney or even amazon with amazon prime uh on like the prime day um and things like that like there's just like this personal relationship with businesses so, and again all of these kind of uh points it's not putney swopes it's not it's the movie's fault because it, it yeah like you said it was it's 50 years old but i think it's it, it was interesting thinking about this movie and what it's uh lampooning about american media culture and you know 50 years ago and how things have shifted so have shifted in such a different direction um that you know it's i don't know and in kind of in contrast with like sorry to bother you there's also like this you know I, there's only there's I, I guess i have mileage with how much satisfaction i can get out of like pointing out the the like what these what these ad firms are doing like i think that the the pointed commentary of putney swope is much more effective in terms of pointing out the the uh the culture of, of like advertising in 1969 but something like sorry to bother you just feels um almost like a like an you know a, a yell in the middle of the forest because um of how uh I don't know how, how many tentacles are out there in terms of how, how uh, business is being run nowadays and how, again, going back to the point of how much advertising is is kind of 
it's kind of c- coming to you in ways that you don't even recognize always. Yeah, I can I can see all that. That makes sense. But um, I guess there, there's just that none of this explains the way that like when the hour mark comes around, I'm like, how much longer is this movie? I'm sorry. I know that's a very like non-intellectual or non-interesting way to approach this, but um, I, I I'm not pulled along by the chin stroking. Um, although I can definitely see what you mean. Any any final thoughts on the movie, Ash? Uh, I mean, did you uh, did you like the movie, or w- would you uh, would you recommend it to people, or would you like recommend a couple like cocktails before watching it? Um, I would certainly recommend a cocktail. Um, I did. There were parts that I thought were like really hilarious and um, good. But overall, I was just sort of like, ah, what to do? (laughs) That was my ultimate reaction. That's my letterboxed review. Ah, what to do? (laughs) That sounds like a good ad for uh, Truth and Soul in advertising. It would probably, like, include, like, a topless woman just bouncing for three and a half minutes and then be like, oh, what to do? Get get, uh, Robert Downey Sr. on the phone. We got a sequel. Yeah, he needs to be doing stuff. His, his, his son, you know, has done enough for us. We're good. <laughs> um, well, I guess that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinematary. You can find us on uh, Twitter at handle at Cinematary. And on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. I mentioned it at the top of the episode, but uh, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Cinematary. we got a lot of great stuff coming up this next month. Uh, but thank you to our patrons so far. Uh, thank you, Cam, Chad Newsom, Christopher Metcalf, Eric Dukowski, uh, Graham Jones, Harry Eskin, Maggie, Marie Barty, Matthew Lingo, Miranda Barnwall, Ron Hayes, Tyler Chandler, Whitney Rio Ross, and Will Carroll. We appreciate you supporting the podcast and website. Next week, we will begin be continuing Young Critics Watch Old Movies with 1966's Daisies. Uh, as I said, we're, we're, we're kind of getting into the, uh, the stretch run for, uh, for young critics. So if you have, uh, not listened to some of the episodes or, uh, are, you know, looking forward to some of the other ones, please, uh, please check it out. we got the schedule up on cinematary.com. Uh, but yeah, until next week, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.